0: So, raise your hand if you are a father. Okay, I got 23. I could be off. So, in the grand scheme of things, there's not like tons and tons of people... Uh, at least in this room, that are fathers. So there are some people who are here today and they're like, well, I'm not a father, I can't be a father, I'm just here because I come on Sunday mornings. Or, you know, uh, I'm coming because I'm here with a family member or a lot of variety of reasons why you might be here and not be a father. And so I don't want to just talk about things that are exclusive to fathers or only applicable to fathers. So I'm going to try to to craft this in a way where if you didn't raise your hand, you are still able uh, to interact uh, with the Scripture and you're still able to walk away with something today uh, regardless of whether or not you are a father, will be a father, have been a father, etc., etc. So we're going to look at the story of Isaac, and that story can be found in Genesis 25. If you are using the Pew Bible, it's also on page 25. Isaac is um, seen a little bit as an in-between individual. There's lots and lots of stories and information about Abraham, and there's lots and lots of stories about Jacob, and Isaac is kind of squeezed there in the middle. He gets like two and a half chapters or so. So... When we look at Isaac, uh, we're going to read chapter 25, verses 24 through 28. Uh, It's on page 25, and the very first verse, um, when it talks about her, it's talking about Rebecca, who is Isaac's wife. So we'll pick up in verse 24, there at the top of page 25. When the time came for her, Rebecca, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau but rebecca loved jacob so we're really going to look kind of at 27 and 28 this morning but i think the big thing that we see in these initial verses and as you read the rest of the chapter you pick up on it if you have children they will be different they may be night and day different like it appears that Esau and Jacob were, or they might just have small differences here and there. But, as a father, you need to make sure you are aware of those differences, and, though this is often um, something that you don't hear, you should treat your children differently. A lot of times you might hear, you know, everything's got to be the same, you treat them all the same, and... I think that is true to a point, but the unique things about your kids, you should honor and be aware of and treat them in a manner that allows those differences to be highlighted. So, for those of you that are not fathers, think about the people you work with. Think about the people you live with. Think about your family. Whatever the group of people that surrounds you, they're probably different. And if they're all the same, that's probably a sermon for a different day. But everybody around you is going to be different, and you should treat them and highlight them and understand their differences. I have a daughter and a son, Emily and James. Um, I often utilize them for my stories or uh, examples. Um, I have noticed, uh, I got to speak three weeks uh, back a couple weeks ago, and I have noticed that, you know, Emily now kind of pays attention. Goes back to James and tells him my stories as well. Um, So much so that a couple weeks ago, I, I told a story about James jumping in puddles. And so when he found out I was speaking again this week, he said, Dad... Don't tell everybody I jump in puddles. Tell them Weston does. <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, he really sold his friend out there." But um, so I have to be uh, careful, you know, how I how I tell these stories. Um, so I will preface this story like this: My children are different. One of them is very savvy and street smart, and one of them is Emily. So um, I began to kind of pick this up maybe a year, year and a half ago, but I have a very vivid memory, and I can't remember if I've told this story or not, but James was still three. He's going to preschool, and I came home. He's sitting in Aaron's lap, and I was like, hey, bud, how's it going? How was your day? Like, you know, kind of my regular uh, opening thing, and he's like, you know, lip out in her lap, boopy pants, like, sad, sad, sad. And I say, like, hey, how's it going? How was your day? Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk. All right, that's fine. So I sit down and, you know, I'm doing whatever, flipping around. And he goes, Dad, I want you to ask me a question. I was like, I mean, I've tried to ask you a question three minutes ago, but okay. Yeah, uh, what do you want me to ask you, bud? I, I want you to ask me if I want chocolate. <laughs> I am not going to ask you. If you want chocolate. But instead of just saying, dad, can I have some chocolate? He's trying to weasel in to have me ask him if he wants some chocolate. And he can be like, you know what? That's a great idea, dad. I do want some chocolate. I'm glad you asked me that question. But knowing that about James and, and knowing what I know uh, about Emily, I have to parent them differently. I have to treat them differently. I have to know the things that stand out about one, the things that stand out about the other. One of them is way more emotional than the other, so I have to monitor um, the tone of my voice. I have to monitor what I say. One of them is female. One of them is male. When I think about what society tells our females and what society tells our males, I have to make sure that what I am telling my daughter and telling my son are aligned with what we see in Scripture, are aligned with what God would have me show and speak versus what they might see on commercials or what they might see on TV shows or in magazines. So knowing the differences is significant to how I parent. And again, thinking about those of you who are not dads, knowing the people you work with your family members, knowing some of those differences should guide how you treat and how you interact with those people. I think, you know, back to school. As an assistant principal this year at Jackson, I was over English and all those teachers, and I was over science and all those teachers. And if you have ever met a science teacher, they are completely different from an English teacher. Science teachers are way more analytical and, in my experience, just want to know the answer. Just tell me. English teachers, less likely to just want to know the answer. They're more interested in the story that goes along with the answer. So, when I'm having interactions or conversations with those teachers, I have to be mindful of what I know about them. There are some teachers that I can just say, here are the three good things, here are the two things I want you to work on, I'll be back in next week and show me how you've worked on those things. Other teachers, I have to take a 25-minute round and about up and through the woods, back and over the mountains to tell them the one half of thing I would really like them to get a little bit better on. But it's knowing those differences, it's knowing how to interact with the people around you or how to interact with your kids that allow you to highlight those differences and to work in a way that is most beneficial to them. It is really difficult not to compare your kids. I think that I knew that going in without kids, but I know that even more now having kids because you have one experience with one, and then the second one comes along, and it's a completely different experience. Like, wait a minute, these three, four, five, seven things happened last time, why are they not happening again this time? And again, we see the differences. James is going to be going in to kindergarten this year, um, and his birthday is September 1st, Emily's birthday is September 14th. So the arbitrary decision by somebody at some point that says September 1st is the cutoff date for when you go into kindergarten means that Emily went in to kindergarten almost as a six-year-old. James is going to go into kindergarten as a four-year-old. They're both going into kindergarten, so I have this understanding of what a kid knows when they're walking into kindergarten, but there's almost a two-year, well, there's a year and a few days difference between their learning, between their knowledge. One's a girl, one's a boy. One was the first kid, one was the second kid. There's so many things that make them unique and give them individuality that if I am not careful, I start comparing. Uh, what we see at the end of verse 28 there, something very dangerous. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So we see favoritism, favoritism. Favoritism. It's really good to be on the receiving end of favoritism. (laughs) I'm the favorite. I'm the best. Thank you, thank you, of course. This makes total sense. I'm the greatest. Why would I not be the favorite? Rolling out the favoritism or, or being on the opposite end of favoritism can be very destructive. I think there's three things we can pick out Uh, about favoritism, and we can see all those things if you continue reading through Genesis. Favoritism can ruin your children's relationship with each other. We see Jacob and Esau, as this story goes, becoming very divided and hateful with one another. I think that's probably because of favoritism. When Jacob wanted something, do you think he ran to Isaac, or do you think he ran to Rebekah? Probably the one who loved him. When Esau wanted something, do you think he ran to Rebekah, or do you think he ran to Isaac, the one who would say yes, the one who he loved? Because of that, and obviously because of other parts of the story, there's a very divisive relationship between Jacob and Esau. And when you think about them, one being favored by one parent, the other being favored by the other parent, that begins to make sense. I think a second thing about favoritism is that favoritism teaches children an inconsistent message about God. One thing that we will find throughout the entire Bible, that we will find through everybody's experience, is... God loves everybody. All of us. The people that we prop up as great human beings and the people that we loathe and that we're angry that they are breathing the air that I breathe. God loves us all. Everyone created in the image of God. When we think about how we treat our children, when we think about how we treat the people around us, the people that we interact with, it's significant if we're going to be claiming to be followers of Jesus that we are doing all we can through the help of the Spirit to show love to everybody we interact with. And I think the third thing is that favoritism is a disease that is easily passed down. If you follow the story of Jacob, you know the story of Joseph and the beautiful coat and the favoritism that drove Joseph's brothers to hate him so much. You could even potentially look back at the story of Abraham and see that maybe there was some favoritism with the fact that he sent Ishmael away. Regardless, it is really easy to pick up on favoritism and to either see that as normal and continue to pass that on, or as to subconsciously do it, not even realizing maybe that you're prioritizing or that you're giving favor to one child over the other. I think another thing that we see in the relationship here with Isaac and Rebecca is that it is important, fathers, for you to agree with your mother on parenting in front of the children. i put a dot, dot, dot in between there. Because Aaron and I agree on most things, there are some things where, you know, maybe we're not 100% on board, but in front of Emily and James, we are a team, we are a unit, we agree. I have been in numerous meetings over the past four years, working uh, at the district level for the school, where we have sat in a conference room and had some knockdown drag outs about this idea or that idea and how it wasn't going to work and it was dumb and we were doing this and doing that. and But when the door opened and we all walked out, it's the best idea I've ever heard of. It's going to go so well. It's going to be smooth. It's going to be the greatest thing. You are going to love it. Because when you are working together as a team, it is significant that you are not cracking or or breaking or tearing away or having this open disagreement in front of your kids because as soon as they see that then they know that there's ways that they can begin to manipulate or, or get you to work against each other when i was younger um, before like going out to eat after church was a thing we would, we would get to do it sometimes, but we always knew as kids, if we wanted to go out to eat after church, we went and asked dad. And it wasn't that mom didn't want us to go out to eat, but dad was going to be way more likely to be like, yeah, let's go out to eat, whatever. Now... They never had conflict back and forth. Where it's like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. I'm sure maybe when we took our Sunday afternoon naps, there may have been some conflict back and forth. But in front of us, there were never issues. There were never divisions about decisions like that. Though, had there been, knowing myself like I do, I think I could have figured out a way to manipulate that situation and turn it into where we got to go out every Sunday afternoon. So when I think about the relationship, the the team aspect of husband and wife, I think about when the kids come up and ask me a question, my default is, what'd your mom say? If she doesn't have an answer, then I'm usually pretty good about giving the answer. Sometimes I still get the look, like... I should have asked before I made that answer. But in general, I try to do 100% team. We're in agreement on this. We're moving forward in this way. When you think about work, maybe you've had meetings like that, where you did not think this idea was a great idea at all. But at the end of the day, you had the badge, or you had the job, or you had the role, or whatever whatever it was, You were going to be a part of the implementation team and you had to roll it out and you had to love it. And it was going to be a great idea. Even if you didn't think deep down it was going to be a great idea. If you stood up there and said alright look this is really dumb but we got to do it anyway. So you're just going to nod and smile and we're going to do it and when they come through and look for it just make sure it's there. Not going to have a bunch of people that are excited and that are willing and that are going out of their way to do this process. And then that becomes a reflection on you and your willingness to participate in the team and be a part of the group. And so when I think about Esau and I I think about Jacob, I wonder what it was like for them as kids clearly we can read in the story Rebecca and Isaac didn't make the best parenting decisions all the time but it seems like Jacob at least took advantage of some of those situations and was able to kind of manipulate things here and there whereas Esau seems so gung-ho on the right now and the immediacy of everything that, you know, he, he couldn't really see down the road. He couldn't see long-term effects. And when we think about, as moms and dads or as, as team members at work, I think it's significant that we are constantly modeling and constantly showing togetherness. And teamwork. If you read more into Isaac's stories, even though it's only, you know, two and a half chapters or so, there's something that kind of sticks out. And I've told you guys before, you know, oftentimes I'm up here just talking to me and you guys are kind of required to listen, maybe fortunately or unfortunately. Um, But there's an interesting thing in chapter 26 with Isaac. Uh, A famine comes. Just like a famine came when Abraham was there. And and God told Abraham, you know, get up and leave. Go. And so the famine comes and Isaac gets up and he goes to leave and God says, Wait. Stay. Same exact situation. Famine. Doesn't look like there's going to be enough food. Abraham is told to go. Isaac is told to stay. And, and I look at that, and I think how weird that is. Why would you not get up and leave in a famine? It makes complete sense. There's no food here. I have to eat. I should go where there is food. But God tells him, stop. Stay here. I'm going to bless you right here. And if you are looking around and you are seeing famine all around you, it takes an immense amount of faith to hear God say stay and choose to stay. So Abraham gets all this credit for this faithful guy. God said get up and leave. And he got up and left. Isaac in the midst of the famine, is told to stay, and he stays. I think that sometimes when we look around and and we see struggles and we see things that that don't exactly make sense, and we're like, all right, i got to do something different. When it's on us, when it's us saying, I have to do something different, I have to go somewhere else, I have to make this decision... We've got a problem. Because it could be that just like Isaac, when it doesn't make any sense, when there's famine all around, that when we let God lead, when we put God first, when we're prioritizing our relationship and we're interacting with him, that God says, stay put. I'm going to bless you right here, even though you see famine all around you. You are a part of my covenant, let me be in control. And when I think about on this Father's Day, the best thing that fathers can do is the best thing that we can all do. And that's to stop and let God be in control. Let's pray.